0: This is Bringing Light into Darkness Monday News and Analysis. This is our membership drives, and it's my great honor to have Amanda Hasso and Greg Seattle. We've got four people of the, of the Racial Justice Subcommittee right here. I'm going to first I'll welcome Amanda to the studio, and Amanda, thanks so much for doing the heavy lifting tonight with the pledge drive.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Haven't been in here in a while. But yeah, we, we need you all to call in right, right now. What is that number? It is
0: 512-472-5667. Let's get to our show. And uh, Pedro, you want to introduce us to what we're going to talk about tonight? Yeah, we let me just say this is Black History Month and the last Monday of Black History Month, the 28th of February. And Malcolm X was so insightful in so many ways, but one of the things that has always stuck with me from researching his work is what he calls image making. It's misrepresenting the world around you in a way that serves the interests of a very elite class and at the reciprocal damage to the the majority population. And I wanted on this show, I'm certainly not a big fan of, of Russia invading Ukraine, but I've been struck by the coverage of it and the complete absence of any interest to suggest what were the motivations. They're just really minimized quite a bit. And one of the things in Putin's words that he mentioned, and again, I'm not taking a position on this, I'm just suggesting that as a matter of journalism, that all sides of all matters should get a more played in time. One of the main things he talked about was the concern in the east of Ukraine and on the border of, of Russia was called denazifying. Okay? It's well known that there's been, we're going to give you the evidence, we've done it on previous shows, of just how horrific the number of, of neo-Nazi elements are in the uh, east of Ukraine And what, 6 million Jews died in World War II, 27 million Russians died. So one of the motivations, and there's other motivations, probably more pointed towards their perception of their national security. Um, But this show tonight is going to be a focused overview of the far-right and neo-Nazi brigades and influences in uh, Ukraine as we speak tonight. So we took uh, some recordings from our May the uh, 17th show of 2021 with Leo Golinkin, go- who's a. And, and let's just go ahead and play that first track, uh, and we'll take a break after that, and we'll be back after this clip. This is an excerpt from the May 17, 2021, Bringing Light into Darkness show, in which we detail how United States couped out a government in Ukraine in 2014. And the result of that coup, from the first time since 1933, the followers of, of movements that adored and sang the praise of Adolf Hitler came to rise in this government into cabinet positions, and I wanted to just set the stage and document with absolute clarity by sharing the names, because I think it's important. Number one, in 2014, the cabinet positions were awarded to two main neo-Nazi fascist parties in the Ukraine. The uh, Social National Party of Ukraine later renamed Svoboda Party, and the Right Sector Party. There was fully eight cabinet positions in the post-coup government that went to folks that were clearly connected to a history of neo-nazism ali Tianabuk, he was a, a svoboda party head uh, andre Petterby, he was a uh-huh, uh-huh. co-founder of the neo-nazi social national party of ukraine later renamed svoboda they're both followers of the ukrainian nazi stepan uh, bandero who will ask you to talk about here in just a minute um, who collaborated in world war ii mass murder of, of, of jews and poles the other Individuals I just wanted to mention, just to get them on the record, we've talked about this in the past, but it's really important, is uh, Ihor Tinyuk, uh, T-E-N-Y-U-K-H. He was an interim defense minister and a member of the Svoboda Political Council. We mentioned Parabay. There was also Dimitro Yarosh, deputy head of Mm the National Security Council. I mean, this is like the police. right sector, yep. Yeah, Oli Mahitsky the Svoboda Member of Parliament and Prosecutor General, another very important post-coup position that helped engineer the repression in the East. Also, Alexandra Siech, S-Y-C-H, Svoboda Party Parliamentarian and one of the Chief Party Ideologists, a Prime mm-hmm. Minister of, Co- of Economic Affairs, and and Sari Kevit, a leading member of Svoboda uh, and headed the Education Ministry. And then finally, the Ministry of Ecology, a former Svoboda envoy to other European fascist parties throughout Europe. Andre Moknik was also. And then finally, the number eight was these agro-oligarch and a member of Svoboda, Ihor uh, Shavika. So anyhow, with that background, it was shocking to me. I love that none of this was really being covered by MSNBC, mm-hmm, by Fox mm-hmm. News, by anybody and uh, Washington yep. Post or the Times. And this was a shocking development for the first time since World War II. There was a government now that was just riddled with neo-Nazis, clearly neo-Nazi elements. And some of the signs and emblems and all of those things confirmed that as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about this profile of this government first before we move into the specifics of your article?
1: All right, you stop me in different places because I've been just jotting down a couple of different notes as just a general picture uh, playing off of what you said, okay? So, first thing is, to understand Ukraine, you have to understand it is an extraordinarily divided nation and a diverse nation. U.S. media speak of Ukraine as if it is a single country march in lockstep, Mm -hmm. which would be pretending that America is united in its support of Joe Biden or Donald Trump. I mean, it's It's just nothing can be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. It is a united country. You look at the maps, and it is, it is divided by language. It is divided by religion. It is divided by economic ties, which is also super important because Eastern Ukraine is tied or was tied to Russia economically, which impacts the way that people vote. So just like people in Texas have a certain tie to Mexico, and Mexico has to Texas, it impacts decisions. Same thing here, except an even more tight region between eastern Ukraine and Russia. Okay, You have a country of 45, or at the time, 45 million people. Okay? So that was divided. Secondly, the reason why what happened at Maidan in 2013-2014 is a coup is because, as you pointed out, Yanukovych, who was the president at the time, he was not only elected by people in eastern europe the election was legitimate it was certified by the european union among others that's something you will never ever hear he was a legitimately elected president it's not just the people in eastern ukraine wanted him president and the rest of the country didn't and they just said oh well too bad no they wanted him president they voted for him as president and he got the majority, which is how he became president. So he was a democratically elected leader. Now, he also happened to be a supremely corrupt scumbag, according mm-hmm. to every metric.
0: Not the first one in the world. Of course, of course. But just absolutely. like Flint, absolutely. your other
1: countries have democratically elected corrupt scumbags.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah.
1: But that didn't make him any less democratically elected. Mm-hmm. So when the uprising happened, it was a coup because it toppled the democratically elected president. And the reason why Eastern Ukraine rose up is because they did it in response to not just the toppling of somebody they like, but somebody who they legitimately elected. It was a negation of the democratic will of the people. So that's number one, okay? Second thing is, as you said, during this uprising, the decision needed to be made between going tying Ukraine into the EU or continuing its ties to Russia. And economics, the way it would just worked out is that Ukraine was intimately tied to Russia. Mm-hmm. And you can tell the difference And severing that tie, especially would impact people in Eastern Ukraine, whose industries relied on trade with Russia. So when people say that people in Eastern Ukraine are pro-Russian, again, that's not an accurate thing. They weren't pro-Russian so much as they were pro-having a job, and their jobs had to do with Russia. Okay, just like mm-hmm. there's plenty of people on the outskirts of austin for example who may work in austin they might not necessarily be austin loyalists but they have jobs they have careers they have economic ties to austin right so that's the second thing and you can tell that those ties were certainly strong because ukraine is now firmly the poorest country in europe so everything that yanukovych's people predicted which is that if you go towards the eu you will lose your your economy with russia and it will crater the country, happened. So now they're the poorest country in Europe. So obviously the decision to not go with the EU was certainly one that was based in reality, okay? Mm -hmm. And the last thing you have to know as far as the coup is concerned is that in the middle of this coup, as people were rising up against Yanukovych, and by people I mean at the most you would say maybe like 20% of Ukraine. It was still millions of people, but oh, if you have a country of 45 million, of course you're going to get, you know, a, a large amount. American media portrayed this as all of Ukraine rising up against Yanukovych, which is just utter garbage. Mm-hmm. The millions of people who did not want to do this, who wanted no part of it, uh, were just ignored by the, for the camera. They were ignored, and instead they only focused on the people who were rising up against them. And the thing that's just amazing, especially after the 2016 election, is into the midst of this uprising against a democratically elected leader came American politicians. Came John McCain. Came Senator Chris Murphy. Came Victoria Newland. So, can you imagine? I mean, talk about foreign interference. Can you imagine if we had some sort of, you know, or even just like the January sixth up, uh, uprising? Fine, you had people rise up. Okay, can you imagine if Russia, if Russia sent like members of parliament to like stand among the protesters and egg them on? To physically have people who are part of another government come over and stand with the protesters and say, we are with you. Could you imagine what would happen if if a dog catcher from Russia did that? And here we're talking about some of the most powerful people in the world who openly and brazenly went to this country and said, go ahead, participate in this. We're with you.
0: At the same time, I remember John Brennan, who was the CIA chief went to Ukraine post-coup, and apparently they originally denied that he was there. He had some fake passport or something, I think, was reported. But regardless, it speaks to the accuracy of what you're saying that there is just a huge US presence not just politically but these people like John McCain and other very high ranking positioned politicians and government figures in the United States are seen in photo ops with some of these neo-nazi like individuals but i thought exactly. that, but i think the fact that John Brennan the head of the CIA went there you know that's something usually a station chief with the cia would be responsible for coordinating yeah. and helping the response uh, or advising that government on how to respond which of course is still an egregious form of meddling but instead when you send your number one man there that's a huge statement And there was following his very quick return to the united states after those meetings there was a really huge upbeat in the uh, repression in the east And someone who's passionate about causes, obviously, uh, Pedro Gatos, Bringing Light into Darkness. News and analysis on Mondays here at KOP. How long has it been, Pedro? How many years? I think we started just before the uh, Iraq War. So 2002, uh, I think I got trained in 2001. The reason you're here is because of the support we get from our listeners, because of the value they find in the message that you share with them. Uh, Amanda, I think we've heard from some of those supporters.
1: Yes, yes, we have Mark uh, with a donation, Chris, for bringing light into darkness. He says, the professor says, keep after it. And (laughs) we have also a a nice message from an anonymous donor saying they love the unself-censored news. And big shout out to Amanda and Greg for their selfless racial
0: justice work. You should throw Pedro in there
1: Pedro, uh, any thoughts on the the last passage we heard?
0: Yeah, basically, kicking this thing off, he was talking a little bit about the coup, and of course, it's striking to me, and I know we need to get back to our work on these clips, we're so concerned about the sovereign rights of Ukraine to join NATO. This is what we hear. But nothing is mentioned about the fact that the United States led a coup that overthrew the elected government. So the sovereignty wasn't too big of a concern until we get somebody... In there, that is, you know, pointed in the right direction, so to speak. Also, John Brennan is a CIA chief. He went over there a couple of times. But you know who else went there? Three, four different times over a, a number of years. That was Joe Biden. So the influence that we had in that country was enormous. And this is into the civil society. Uh, Nuland, Victoria Newland. She got mentioned by by our guest. She was the Under Secretary of State in a speech. Says from 1991 straight up to 2014, five billion dollars was poured in into this country by the United States. So, as we turn to the next track, Greg, this next track, continuing this uh, this theme about by this expert, this neo-Nazi expert on far-right groups. I think it goes back to the image making. You know, our history on our news, whether it's NPR, the more progressive ones are just don't get it done, it starts when? You'll hear every time. When when Russia took over Crimea. Well, wait a minute. That occurred after the coup. The coup doesn't even is never even mentioned. And the response to the coup were a lot of things. And I'm not trying to rationalize the behavior of one country or another, but if you don't present stuff in a in an accountable, forthright way then the American people, it's going to be very difficult for them to really figure out if they're being they're being hood, hoodwinked. you know we got hoodwinked in Iraq, we got hoodwinked in Vietnam, we got hoodwinked in Libya. Why would you just trust what this what our government says without verifying it? Okay, so let's get back to that, that next clip. We now return to our interview with Lev Golinkin and we return to our discussion on his explanation of neo-nazism in Ukraine. And the relationship to the United States. Can you just talk a little bit more too about? I know it's not as simple as East against West, but those are in the East. There, these folks that were overwhelmingly supporters of the government that got cooed out. They also their primary language was Russian, and part of the impetus into the East was to demean these people by and take their language from them as an act of a new government, this, this, this neo-fascist-led government. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah,
1: sure. And I'm from eastern Ukraine. I speak Russian. That's my my primary language. I have people going back a, in Ukraine for generations, and they've spoken Russian. So it's these people's native language. It's the language that they have spoken in that region for a very long time. But this isn't that question. This is these people demanding the right to use their native language in their country. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this is something that it's not a they were not asking Ukraine to be nice to them they were demanding. And the situation with Russian and Ukrainian in Ukraine it's it's really not that difficult it's like it's like Canada and French, you know. Mm-hmm. Every few years the government of Canada goes out of their way to tell Quebec that they love the French language it is a wonderful and melodic and beautiful language and that Quebec should continue speaking it. Okay? And every document you will see out of Canada, even if somebody lives in Vancouver, on their, on their document you'll also see French. And the reason they do this is because they know if they do not make Quebec feel like they are comfortable with their language, Quebec will start talking about separating. Mm-hmm. And if they, start pushing, uh, if they start pushing the French language out, suddenly millions of people in Quebec or, whatever, or, or whoever is in Quebec is going to start, they're going to be the enemy. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what happened in eastern Ukraine. A new government came to power, and the very first order of business, like literally the first thing they moved to pass, is is stripping protection from the Russian language. Mm -hmm. To the half the country that speaks Russian that just lost their elected president, I mean, that is a very strong thing. Again, these people, this is the language that they use. And they were told, we are not interested in having you as equals. We're not interested in your language. We're not interested. We are interested in imposing our will on you.
0: So that's one element of it. You know, taking away your culture, taking away your language, treating you in that way as a second-class citizen is one deal. But the thing that was so shocking to me at the time, I remember following the coup, were some of these attacks, particularly the one in Odessa, in which it was uh, awful. And before I ask you to talk a little bit about that, but there, there were these battalions that were connected to the Ukrainian security services. And the Azkov was one mm-hmm. of them. Uh, and there were several other ones. And when they use this language that these were far right, that, that they were nationalists, these were neo-Nazi volunteer battalions. And not only did the UN, in a report by the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, speak about the rate of atrocities that went on and mass graves that were later found in, in the Donetsk area, But that the trauma inflicted by these groups led to an effort that none of the, the monies would go to these groups. The National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, is a name for each of a series of U.S. federal laws that specify annual budget and expenditures of the U.S. Department of Defense. In the summer of 2015, as the NDAA was making its way through Congress, Representatives John Conyers, Michigan Democrat, and Ted Yoho, Republican of Florida, put forth an amendment that passed unanimously in the House of Representatives that would have ruled out training or arming the notorious Azov battalion, an openly neo-Nazi and fascist unit that uses symbols of the Nazi SS. But by the time Congress and Obama finished resolving their differences six months later, the only part of that Conyers-Yoho amendment that survived was the prohibition on portable air defense systems, MANPADS, to Ukraine. Obama signed the omnibus spending bill, Section 9014 of the law allocated 250 million to provide assistance including training, equipment, lethal weapons of a defensive nature, logistics support, supplies, and services to the military and national security forces of the Ukraine without any exclusions. Obama went forward without the ban on training or equipping the neo-Nazi Azov or similar units being included. And by doing so, we were turning our back on the neo-Nazi nature and elements of the Ukraine government that we were supporting. So let's take a step back first. Talk about the Conyer bill and that it was a unanimous decision. But then six months later, when the omnibus bill passed, somehow the teeth and it was completely missing of these restrictions.
1: Yeah, it was stripped. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about the the battalions against first and just explain what they are and what part they played. Okay, thank you. You stop me if you want. You need to redirect. So presence of neo-Nazis during Maidan is something that was very underreported as a kind way of saying it, okay? Now, when we're talking about neo-Nazis, again here, we are not talking about the neo-Nazis that we see a lot in America. Let's say largely overweight, not capable of doing much, okay? And we're not talking about people in polo shirts that are marching with torches, we're talking about gangs of rather serious neo-Nazis, both in the, not just ideology, but also the ability to fight. We're talking about street muscle, the ability to take on police, the organization, which was crucial. They were organized extremely well. Okay, mm-hmm. So these gangs of neo-Nazis, they provided the crucial street muscle in Maidan. One of the people who you mentioned, Andriy Perubi, he led a neo-Nazi party for a long time. He co-founded it. He ran the security for the uprising. And while, of course, the majority of people who participated in the uprising were not Nazis, the people who made the crucial difference and the people who then had an outsized impact were neo-Nazis. And those are the people that were edited out of the story in America, and quite literally, because there was a film called Winter on Fire. It was actually nominated for the Oscars as a a documentary. It was just about how Ukraine is standing up against this this government, and just, it was complete garbage, because even the director purposefully said in an interview, he actually admitted it, in an interview, that he edited out inconvenient parts like neo-Nazis. And you can see, if you know what you're looking for, you can see... A couple of flags, you can see the diff- you know, them in some places, but you have to know what you're looking for. And if you're a foreigner who knows nothing about Ukraine, you're not going to say, oh, well, this is this organization. So these neo-Nazi gangs played a crucial role in the overthrow, which is why they've had so many of them come to power in the interim government. Mm-hmm. Soon after... When the war began in eastern Ukraine, when Donetsk and Luhansk rose up against the, in response to the coup, these gangs transformed themselves into battalions. The Ukrainian army was in tatters. They had nothing to fight with. So that's when the same gangs that played a crucial role in the uprising said, we're going to form volunteer units. And they then began committing extraordinary war crimes Mm -hmm. against the people of eastern Ukraine.
0: We need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby Austin. We'll be back with our guest, Lev Golinkin, right after this brief pause. Don't touch that dial.